At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, performing and overcoming adversity. Josh Blue doesn't shy away from his disability in his stand-up comedy. Blue has cerebral palsy, and much of his material focuses on how others perceive him. We'll hear from this past winner of the last comic standing competition later in the program. The Atlanta Opera's new season opens with the tears of a clown. E. Pagliacci is set in a circus and baritone Reggie Smith joins us to talk about his role in one of opera's favorite tearjerkers. And baritone Michael Mays takes us through the biting satire of the Kaiser of Atlantis. We'll also hear about singing and attending live performance in an outdoor tent with strict safety protocols. First, the stories and interviews we bring you every day on City Lights are typical of what you expect from public radio. We have the ability to expand your worldview and enrich your life. But to help pay for this programming, we're asking that you make a donation today. We rely on listeners like you to chip in because 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta community. You can do your part now at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. I'm Lois Reitzes, Join this hour by WABE music contributor, host of Strike Up the Band, music educator extraordinaire, and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony, Scott Stewart. Pretty soon, I'm going to need several minutes to list all your achievements. Oh, you're so nice. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And I'm so happy to support one of my favorite causes, which is WABE. We have two great reasons for you to donate right now. First of all, your gift will help pay for City Lights, but it will also help our community partner, Giving Kitchen. 
They provide emergency assistance to Atlanta food service workers. So your gift right now will also cover the cost of a day's worth of utilities for a food service worker in need. Please give at wabe.org slash donate or call us at 678-553-9090. My name is Joya Sloan and I live in Midtown in Atlanta. I gave to WABE because I really value what they do and I also value press that is unbiased and I definitely think it's worth it. I think that if something you believe in, then you have to show it or put your money where your mouth is or what you believe in. Thank you, Joya. Now it's time for you to put your money where your mouth is or where your ears are. What would you pay for around-the-clock quality programming? 50 cents a day? That's a pretty good deal. And it equals $15 a month which will make you a WABE sustaining member. Your donation will support unbiased journalism and the arts and culture coverage you expect from City Lights. So please take a few minutes right now and give what feels right to you at WABE.org or call 678-553-9090. Thanks. You're a partner with WABE. Every day we do the best job we can to bring you radio programs that are informative and enjoyable. Think about all of the joy that Lois provides here on City Lights. We always know what's going on in music, in museums, in art, in food, in so many cultural institutions around town, even during a pandemic. But we can't do any of this without your support. Listener donations are WABE's most important and reliable source of funding. We're committed to you, and we also rely on you. Please join the family and make a donation. Join the Public Radio Partnership today with your contribution at wabe.org slash donate. You can show your admiration for WABE when you donate at the $10 monthly sustainer level. And as a thank you, we'll send you the I Love WABE fold-away tote bag. It's red and white and features the I Heart WABE logo. This lightweight tote folds neatly into itself for pocket-sized storage. It's yours with a new sustaining gift of $10 per month or with a single gift of $120. Please make your first ever donation this fall at wabe.org or call 678-553-9090. Thank you. We're partnering with Giving Kitchen this afternoon, so your one gift to WABE also covers the cost of one day's worth of utilities for an Atlanta food service worker. Over the last six years, right here in Greater Atlanta, Giving Kitchen has provided aid to more than 2,500 food service workers in crisis. You can help too with your gift right now. This partnership with Giving Kitchen is only available on City Lights today. So please give right now at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thanks very much. There is no scientific basis for saying bad things come in threes, 
the right now, I can tell you for this interview that good things come in twos. Reginald Smith Jr. and Michael Mays are renowned baritones who live in Atlanta. Each will perform in the outdoor productions of the Atlanta Opera's Big Tent series. And they join us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. I confess to a bias of favoring baritones and never quite understood why tenors are the romantic heroes in operas, typically. Any thoughts on why your vocal range gets fewer romantic leads and usually more villainous roles? Well, I think it's because it, you know, it, it takes so much more um, talent and acting skill to really pull off the villains. So, you know, <laughs> what it's about, you know, tenors can get up there and make their high squeaky noises and that's all well and good. But, you know, the real, the real work uh, comes when you have to have a baritone doing a bad guy. <laughs> you know, also, I, I think it's, it's something about having a villain with a really high voice that somehow you don't quite take them as serious, you know? <laughs> That's what I mean, guys. You're like, no, I don't know about <laughs> no, yeah, that. I'll believe you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough of my bias and your humor. We're going to go chronologically here. Reggie, you will perform in the opening production on Thursday, October 22nd the Italian opera favorite, I Pagliacci. First, let's talk about your background. You grew up in DeKalb County. When did you become interested in opera? Well, the first time I saw an opera uh, was actually when I was at school at DeKalb School of the Arts. We went to see the Atlanta Opera's production of Tosca in 2005. And I had never seen an opera. I, I was familiar with classical music, uh, but not opera. And I thought, well, okay, we get out of school if we go and see it. Why not? And I was just mesmerized. I was bit by the opera bug, if you will. So it's kind of nice to come full circle to come back to Atlanta, uh, the Atlanta Opera, the place where I first experienced opera. You won the Metropolitan Opera's National Council auditions five years ago. That is a tremendous achievement, as it's among the most rigorous of all competitions. What did that win provide you? Well, you know, before we get to the whether the win provide, talk about another serendipitous moment, if you will. I had auditioned about five times previously. And when I auditioned in 2015, the only region and district that worked out for me was the Atlanta region. Not only did I have to do the Met auditions, but then I had to do it at home in front of all the folk, if you will. So it added an extra level of nerves, but also pride and excitement. I was fortunate that I was leaving the Houston Grand Opera Studio at the same time. So I had completed my time in Houston and I had won the Metropolitan at the same time. So it really gave me the opportunity to pursue lots of uh, upcoming opportunities and 
different work and concerts and opera and recitals. So it really sort of skyrocketed things. And I've been very grateful for that. Oh, my husband and I were fortunate enough to have seen the Atlanta Opera's Porgy and Best early in March before the remainder of performances were canceled due to the pandemic. Congratulations on a superb performance, Reggie. Thank you. In Porgy, you sang the role of Jake, the fisherman, who is a wonderful character, a devoted dad and husband, not a villain. Gershwin got it. He got it. In Pagliacci, the opening opera for this Big Tent series, you're a mean guy again. Tell us about Tonio, the role you play in the upcoming production. You're a mean one. Wait, uh, <laughs> different person, but same idea. Tonio, you know, I often think of Tonio like Iago in Otello. He's just always there. He's lurking. He's the, the mastermind of it all. And it's so exciting. It's a role you can really sink your teeth into. But he kicks off the opera. Yeah. He starts out by saying, I'm the prologue. Hey, when you see us in pain here, we're not just actors. We're real people just like you. up the Verismo idea from the very beginning that this is not going to be another happy-go-lucky show that this is this is some real drama and the person that sort of drives um, a lot of the drama in the sense of just sort of behind the scenes I think is Sonia so it's always exciting to just kind of lurk around stage and stir up some trouble <laughs> would you define Verismo for those who may not be familiar Sure. I think Verismo, in its easiest way to define it, is very close to the truth, like verity, you know, Verismo, that, you know, there's not a lot of superfluous feathers and, you know, all of these things. These are real characters. These are real situations that happen to each and every one of us or we've seen happen. You know, you could put some of these same stories on stage today or in the streets today and it would still be incredibly relevant. So it speaks to the true nature of our characters and the true nature of who we are as human beings. These are why these stories, even though they were written over a hundred years ago, are still incredibly relevant and still deeply moving. And so we are very fortunate for them. And I think each and every person that comes to the show will really experience something personal through the uh, productions. Indeed. I understand there will be puppets in this production. What purpose? You better know do, it. Yeah, tell us what purpose these 
puppet serve? Well, you know, typically you have the Comedia del Arte, or, you know, you see the, the happy mask and the sad mask. And so you have the, the, the whole comedy of it all. You know, the overly uh, dramatic, melodramatic acting, you know. So instead of, uh, well, not instead of, in addition to doing all of those things, they decided to add puppets. And some of them are, you know, close to like five feet tall, which is amazing. But you really get a sort of, it adds a bit of charm and humor to the show. And it's kind of fun and kind of weird to have a cutout that kind of looks like you. So, yeah. (laughs) You know? <laughs> Is it true that part of the reason for this was puppets can embrace each other and in concern for you singers, those of you on the stage cannot? Well, I will say what is utmost important is all the safety for the fellow actors, for the audience, and for everyone involved. And with that in mind, the Atlanta Opera has been very innovative and very creative. One of those ways incorporating it into our staging has been the use of puppets, because as you say, we have to be six feet apart and it's kind of hard to do that when you're doing a love scene or so. So they've incorporated this use of puppets where uh, the puppeteers are not singing so they can be closer, everyone's tested weekly and you still get a sense of the story you still get a sense of the charm and everyone's able to see the show and even in an heightened uh, sense and, and angle. So I think it's a really smart decision that makes the story work, but it also helps to keep us all safe, which is the number one goal. So it adds a little extra, if you will. So I'm really excited about that as well. Barrett turns Reginald Smith Jr. and Michael Mays will be in the upcoming Atlanta Opera performances opening this week. We'll be back with more of our conversation after a short break. This is WABE Atlanta. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. As you write your life story... You're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at SCS. Dot georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hi, I'm Lois Reitzes. Right now, we are in our fall member drive. This is the time of year when we do something special, when we take a leap of faith and ask you to support the programs you love. You rely on us to bring you unbiased news, information, arts and culture stories, 
We rely on you to support the programming. In fact, 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta community. Now it's time for you to join the tens of thousands of WABE listeners who are members. Make your donation now by calling 678-553-9090 or clicking the Donate button at wabe.org. I'm joined this hour by WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart. Thanks, Lois. And right now in this hour, we have a very special reason to donate to WABE. We're fundraising with our community partner, Giving Kitchen, today. Your one donation right now will help power WABE, and it will also cover the cost of a day's worth of utilities for a food service worker in need right here in Atlanta. All you need to do is make a donation at wabe.org slash donate or call 678 553 Hi, I'm Keith Woods. I'm the Chief Diversity Officer at NPR. Public radio is not only powerful, but the responsibility is great. We're telling people every day that we're giving them enough information to do what they need to do in this democracy. If we are not bringing all of the voices possible forward, we're not doing that. When you don't talk to people, you talk for them. And diversity is about giving people the full voice. I give to my station because I know how much it takes to do the journalism that the journalists at NPR do. I'm Keith Woods. You count on us to do the kind of homework that allows us to provide you with a full and accurate image of the people around you. Here's how you can support journalism that sounds like our world and broadens yours. The place to make your gift? wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Did you hear what Keith said when he mentioned when you don't talk to them, you talk for them? Wow, I love that. You hear a diverse range of voices every day on WABE and here on City Lights, We constantly strive to broaden your world. We hear from cookbook authors and chefs, such as Lawrence Smalls, who began life as an opera singer. You hear from filmmakers. You hear from authors, such as Roman Mars of 99% Invisible. Recently, we heard from comedian Lewis Black, who is not the angry, ranting guy we know and love on TV, but a very warm-hearted, generous guy. We're hoping you can be generous today to donate to WABE because we depend on you to bring you this kind of programming. Please make your first ever gift at wabe.org slash donate. Whether you're a first-time WABE member or you've given in the past, consider becoming a WABE sustaining member. That way, you'll never need to worry about when your membership expires. It only takes a few minutes to make your donation, so please call us at 678 
553-9090 or go to wabe.org. We need your support. And remember, we're partnering with Giving Kitchen today. They provide emergency assistance to Atlanta food service workers. So when you give right now to WABE, it will also cover the cost of a day's worth of utilities for a food service worker who needs help. We're only offering this partnership with Giving Kitchen today in City Lights. So please give right now at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thanks so much. Let's return to more of my conversation with the Atlanta opera performers, baritones Reginald Smith Jr. and Michael Mays. Michael Mays. You've appeared several times with the Atlanta Opera, including in Sweeney Todd as the Demon Barber, as Joseph de Roche in Dead Man Walking. I lights 24 hours a day, but you probably ain't never been to Vegas. Actually, I The entire production was astonishing. And for the soon-to-be-performed opera, The Kaiser of Atlantis, how would you describe your role of the emperor? Well, you know, in, I mean, the, 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 the opera itself was written as a not-so-thinly-veiled critique of an authoritarian regime, the Nazi regime that was in charge uh, during the Holocaust. I mean, it wasn't, he wasn't real subtle, you know, and and my character is Emperor Überall, which is you know the the the, the king overall, right? He's the king of he, he controls everything, and he's an authoritarian. And my character really is. I mean, we discover through the course of the show that it's the the, the fears that any oppressed group has about their oppressor are realized through the course of this show. When you realize that. You know, it's not that this man is fighting for some ideology or for his people. His ideology is that he finds the human race itself to be unworthy of existence. And his, his plan all along is to wipe them off the face of the earth and, and to release existence from the torture of the human condition.
you're playing Sweeney Todd or like they said, Joseph Desrochers, there's a lot of ways to play monsters, quote unquote. And there's two general ways of telling that story. You can either have someone who appears to be a monster and you expose their humanity through the course, or you have somebody that's, that's uh, a human and you, you expose their monstrosity throughout the course of your storytelling. Uberall is truly a sociopath and a psychopath. And so that's a, a, a different way of telling the story because it's really hard to connect with that. You know, it's, it's not that he lacks humanity, it's that he, he encapsulates sort of the worst aspects of the human organism. And so it's like, when, you, when you're playing Joseph, you know, you, the first thing you see with Joseph is, is the rape and the murder. And then we sort of, you know, we sort of get to know him as a person and you sort of understand the why of why he is who he is. With Sweeney Todd, it's the same way. You know, you, 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 you're presented with this story and then through the course of the thing, you see you, the, the, the narrative unfold that created him. And with, with Ubedal, it's which, what you're doing at, through the course of the show is, is, is not exposing that, 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 the aspects of humanity that we can all say, oh, that's, you know, that's, that understands why. There is no why. There is no why. It, th that's the scariest thing about this character is that it, it, at the end of the show, you actually discover that it's not, that he's, he's there to rid the earth of humanity. And that for me is, is the scariest part about this character. And uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely terrifying to imagine someone with that kind of animus. In, in humanity. Now, the backstory of this opera is horrid as the composer was imprisoned in one Nazi concentration camp when he wrote it and sent to die in another because he wrote it. Is there redemption in this story? You know, I don't know. You know, it, it doesn't seem so for, for Uberall, no. Because when you have these, these dictators, these authoritarians, they meet their end in usually one of two ways, either begging for their lives or, or screaming, you know, or cursing their, their con conquerors uh, straight to the grave. In this story, Ubedal doesn't, he doesn't have a, a moment of like, oh, I was wrong, or, oh, I now see the monstrosity of what I've been doing, the atrocity that I've been committing. He doesn't have that moment. He goes to, he goes to the grave, with basically a middle finger to humanity and to death. He doesn't redeem himself. I mean, that's what's terrifying about these kinds of characters, not even, not even in just storytelling, but in, in life and in, in, in reality, that sometimes there are these people who are divested of those elements of humanity that we look at as the most, you know, compassion and, 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 and kindness and all those things. That's what's so scary about this guy. So what is the ultimate message of the Kaiser of Atlantis? I think it's, I mean, it's a, you look, I mean, when you look at the guys that wrote, the, that wrote this opera, uh, it wouldn't be so beyond them to imagine that the, their oppressors weren't just trying to rid the world of, of them, but of everyone, because they're, they're, I keep using this word monstrosity, but it's just so, it's so distilled and so scary that to them 
you know, they really, you know, they, they were in the moment in history. We have the benefit of looking back and knowing the end of the story. They didn't know the end of the story, but they predicted it pretty well. And so I think, you know, the, the, it really is a warning that, that when you empower individuals that are so disordered as Uberal is, you run the risk of spreading that disorder, not only to people in the government, but to the entire society. And for me, that's what, that, that is the lesson of De Kaiserfone Atlantis. When you have this confluence, a fundamentally disordered individual with unlimited executive power, what you, what you run the risk of is something horrible and just unimaginable befalling a society, which is what happens in the Casa von Atlantis. And that the, that the recovery from such a journey is long and, and, and daunting indeed. Mike, you created a variety show called Opera to Opry, yeah. Love, Liquor, and the Lord. Yes. <laughs> Played at the Shakespeare Tavern, and that show drew on similarities between opera and country music. What, what can you tell us about the show you are developing for this big tent concert series? Well, I can tell you as, you know, as someone who, I had a lot of misconceptions about what opera was and who opera was for and all that before I, before I discovered the art form in college. So it took me a long time to really understand, you know, what, what all this opera stuff was about. Because I grew up playing country music and bluegrass and all that stuff. Like a lot of people, who, who sing opera for a living or who are in the opera business. You know, I didn't, I wasn't five years old in cut and shoot Texas in our trailer, dreaming of one day being Pavarotti. I didn't know who Pavarotti was, so I got to high school, you know? So for me, I was, I wanted to be Chris Christopherson or Willie Nelson or Johnny Cash. And so I think it's, a, it's the case for a lot of people in our business that they, that, they, that their entry point to music was something other than opera and they came to opera later. But essentially, all of these musical forms, these art forms, these way of expressing or storytelling are, are really, it's universal that the, 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 the impulse and the, the storytelling element is, is, is present in all music. And opera is sort of like the technicolor thing, but like I said, with the Opera to Opry show, you know, you know Opry can do what opera does in three and a half hours in three and a half minutes. Essentially, they're the same. They're, they're, they're telling the same stories, especially when you, I mean, I love that you brought up Verismo Opera with Reggie. That's, I mean, Verismo Opera was meant to tell the real story, the, the real, a real slice of life, you know, a real insight into the lives of real people. Well, there's, I mean, for me, there are a few other forms of musical expression than country music that really speak to that particular ethos, you know, telling the stories of real people. That's what country music does. And so this crossroads thing, I, I know that there are people in our business who, who have other forms of expression that don't necessarily mean standing on stage in a fancy costume and screaming to 4,000 people. Sometimes they, they also have other ways of expressing themselves. And I really wanted to explore that. And I really wanted people to see that in our audience to know that, you know, we're more than just these these sort of stereotypes that have been so prevalent about our art form. We are, we, we, we love the same music, we do the same thing and we live the same lives as people in our audience do. And so 
this for me was a great way to sort of show the incredible diversity that's present in our business. So you'll, you're gonna see not only just, you know, like for me and, and Megan, we're gonna do some country music and some bluegrass tunes, but we have folks doing jazz, we have folks doing blues, R&B, uh, pop music and folk songs and all this stuff. So there's just a, a tremendous amount of expressive ability in this community that I, I, I feel that's not always shown to our audience. And I think this is a great way to sort of see the other side of uh, our creative folks. I think that sounds great. And I should add, Megan is Megan Marino, who is your wife. Yes. <laughs> and she is singing with Reggie. Yeah. Okay. She's almost as tall as one of those puppets. <laughs> <laughs> seeing, her, seeing her and Trace Megger next to each other is the funniest thing, thing you'll see. Uh, <laughs> well, Reggie spoke about some of the health and safety concerns, which are foremost in mind now. And I know the Atlanta Opera has taken this into tremendous consideration. That's why you're performing in an outdoor tent, socially distanced. I'm curious what it has meant in terms of your rehearsals. Well, we have to wear, I mean, I, I'll, no, go I'll for it. jump in, but like, but I know Reggie and I, we're definitely <laughs> struggling with the same thing, which is, you know, we have these plastic boxes on stage that sort of separate us all, but we play inside and outside of the boxes. And while we were rehearsing in the, in the, in the rehearsal hall and even outside, if we're outside of those boxes, we're wearing a mask to sing all the time. And, and that's, that's a very, you know, that's, that's a new thing for us, you know, to have something normally, you know, you go to a fit and you're like, please don't put too much uh, tension around my neck. So I can, you know. And now we have these things that like, not only cut off like a, a little bit of the resonance and the, and the way we, way it feels to sing, but it also cuts off like half of our storytelling monitor or our, our, our storytelling tool, which is our face. You know, you can only see our eyes. And so it, it really does present a, a challenge as a storyteller, you know, that you don't want to like overdo it. You don't want to go crazy. You still want it to be real. And you have to recognize the fact that we're all in these masks. And, and, and that's what's great about Atlanta. They're not, they're not sidestepping and pretending that this, that this pandemic isn't happening. You know, the pandemic is very much present in both productions. You're going, you're going to see, I mean, that's, that's the essence of Verismo. When you watch these shows, you're going to see not only the struggle of performers performing during the time of pandemic, but you're going to see some of your own struggles as, as a person that's enduring this time. So you, you singers, you and all of the rest of the singers who will perform in these two operas will be masked for the performance? Well, we're not masked for the entirety of the performance. We have these... I don't even explain like the cubes or if you will, that have a plastic sort of covering. So when we're in those, it's okay. Or if we're in the center of the stage and there's at least 15 feet around us where no one's around, it's okay. But when you have interactions with other people, then you have to remember, oh, my mask. <laughs> Which, you know, again, you can also, you know, you make a part of the staging but also it's a part of real life. I mean, I know I'm not the only one that's 
jumped out of my car to go into the gas station and was like, oh, got to get my mask. And so it's kind of <laughs> the same thing. Sometimes your character steps out of the cube and you're like, oh, another person, mask. <laughs> but no, there will be some, some singing without said mask, but you better believe we're taking every safety precaution imaginable to make sure that not only we're safe, but that the audience is safe as well. There's a tremendous amount of anxiety for, I mean, for, for us and the audience. And I think if we were to ignore that anxiety and try to pretend that this is a pre-corona time and that we're trying to give people back something that they feel like they've quote unquote lost, I think that's a real mistake. I think acknowledging the fact that we have to use these things and these things are now part of our society and part of our life. And, you know, I know that when I, when I watch television now and I watch a, a, a show that's from before the pandemic and people are hugging up on each other and, and like kissing and all <laughs> man, I, my skin starts to crawl. I'm like, Gah! so I, I think if I were to see that as an audience member, it would make me super uncomfortable. It might take me out of the, the moment. And so I, I think it's important that we acknowledge that these things are part of our life now. Baritones Michael Mays and Reginald Smith Jr. The Atlanta Opera season opens in the Big Tent tomorrow on the grounds of Oglethorpe University. Reggie Smith will perform in Pagliacci. Mike Mays will perform in the Kaiser of Atlantis, opening Friday. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The way to support the quality programming you just heard is by donating to WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. It's our fall member drive. And we're asking our devoted listeners, listeners like you, to become members. Your sustaining gift of $15 a month protects our editorial independence, allows us to tell Atlanta's stories, and bring you arts and culture coverage that you rely upon. Maybe you didn't know this, but 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta area. That's why we need your help. Please become a sustaining member by calling 678-553-9090 or visit wabe.org slash donate. I'm joined this hour by WABE music contributor and educator, Dr. Scott Stewart. Thanks, Lois. You know, we know that 2020 has been a tough year, and that's certainly the case for food service workers. We're talking about waiters, cooks, and all food service staff. But when you donate to WABE today, you will also help them because of our partnership with Giving Kitchen. Here's how it works. Your one gift to WABE also covers the cost of a day's worth of utilities for a food service worker in need. So two great things happen when you give today at wabe.org slash donate, or you can make a donation by calling 678-553-9090. Thanks so much. My name is Sarah Yerman, and I live in Decatur, Georgia. Well, I listen to 90.1 pretty much every time I get a chance, and I'll listen to it on my phone or on my laptop, and I listen to it because I can believe the things that come out of it. 
particularly in cases like, like we have today where a lot of news really isn't. And what you hear from WABE is something that you can take to the bank. That's right, Sarah. WABE is here for you with news you do not have to question. Whether you listen in the car or at home, whether you stream us online or ask a smart speaker to play WABE, the quality is always consistent. That's true of our arts and culture coverage as well. Please take some time right now and become a sustaining member with a monthly contribution. We suggest $15 a month, but please give what you can afford. Visit wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thank you. You might wonder how a monthly contribution of $15 could help WABE. So think about this. The program you're listening to is on the air because thousands of people started their sustaining membership during last year's drive. It all adds up. In order to bring you Morning Edition and All Things Considered, WABE pays a fee to NPR. It comes out to more than $4,000 a day every day. And that's just for the news magazine shows. It also costs quite a bit of money to bring you city lights every day. So with that in mind, we're asking you to step up and become a WABE member and support the programming that you rely on right now. Call us at 678-553-9090 or click on wabe.org. Remember, We're partnering with Giving Kitchen today, so your gift supports WABE and pays for a day's worth of utilities for a food service worker in need. You can help support two great causes with your gift at wabe.org slash donate. This partnership with Giving Kitchen is only available in City Lights today. So please give now at wabe.org slash donate, or you can call 678-553-9090. Thank you. Josh Blue doesn't shy away from his disability in his stand-up comedy. In fact, he embraces it. Blue has cerebral palsy, and much of his material focuses on how others perceive him. In 2006, he won the last comic standing competition, which launched his career. Josh Blue joined me ahead of an Atlanta show last year. Here's how he began. You know, I actually started in college. I went to um, a very hippie college in Olympia, Washington, called Evergreen State College. And um, you can create your own courses and your own majors, and I actually studied stand-up comedy. Fantastic. I had a hippie boyfriend in high school who went there for Uh, just that reason. Perfect. (laughs) Well, from the beginning of your career... um, Did you ever shy away from discussing cerebral palsy, or did you just embrace it head on? You know what? Uh, Initially, I didn't even bring it up. I didn't mention it. I um, 
just talked about all the other crazy stuff that I've done and all the experiences, world travel. And then uh, it slowly started to leak into my material and I discovered that people really responded to me being brutally honest about it. And, and um, I felt like the more honest I was about it, the more people um, could relate. Um, uh, I feel like everybody has a disability in some way. And, and um, you know, me throwing myself under the bus for your entertainment, uh, people really eat it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to have a pretty good self-concept to be able to do that. I I thought about um, something I once heard Stephen Colbert say in an interview as, as I was prepping for our conversation today. And Stephen Colbert said that he was picked on a lot as a kid, picked on in school. He was bullied. I could see that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, being funny came as a self-defense mechanism for him. And he found that the quicker his comeback, the more respect he gained from the kids who bullied him. And eventually they backed off and he was the funny kid. Do you think that if not suffering, um, itself, that something about our vulnerabilities uh, lends itself well to comedy. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I have a lot of similar situations and stories like that as a kid. And, and I was, I've always been very quick to verbally slap back. Um, and, and like he said, it, once you uh, let them know that you're quicker and funnier than them, then they they don't want to mess with you. They don't want to be uh, perceived as a fool. Um, so if the disabled guy's funnier and quicker than you are, you're probably not going to mess with them too much more. So you developed your sense of, your sense of humor kind of emerged out of necessity as a kid? Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I think I've always had the gift of being funny, but it definitely got sharpened the more I went into the world and the more I saw how things are perceived and how people perceive disability. Well, let's listen to a clip from your routine at the 2006 Last Comic Standing competition where you won. I was walking downtown and the drunk tank stopped and picked me up. I was like, uh-oh. I was like, wait a minute here, fellas, there's a misunderstanding. I'm, I'm not drunk, I have cerebral palsy. They were like, that's a pretty big word for a drunk ass. So, that wasn't painful. That was just what came naturally. Right. And it's a true story. Oh, so that's the kicker. You know, a lot of uh, my humor is just really based on real life experiences. And how did winning Last Comic Standing? Um, how did winning that competition help build your career in comedy? Well, it definitely just blew the doors off of anything that I was doing at the time. I was already a pretty established, like uh, college act, um, doing a lot of. Uh, shows nationwide just uh, on the sort of 
disabled, you know, do the disabled awareness month stuff like that. But then once I got on the uh, last comic, uh, it just really launched my career. And, and now I'm on the household name and, and, uh, uh, everywhere I go, people, people recognize me and uh, well, I definitely have a very distinct gait. <laughs> so you can, it is distinct. You can pick me out of a crowd for sure. Josh, it, it's really fun to watch that, to look back on your performance in 06 at Last Comic Standing. I mean, you cracked up the likes of Kathy Griffin. Yeah. Not many people can do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny for me to watch that stuff now. It's really really painful because <laughs> to me I'm like oh god why are they laughing at it but um you know I just feel like such a better comic now well, um you know 13 all, years in yeah. the life of a young man can make a big difference and yeah. um, I just put out my fifth hour special so uh that's a pretty pretty amazing feat you know doing that much material in that amount of time comedian Josh Blue there will be more information about Blue and his comedy on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 to hear about a major exhibition opening at the High Museum, The Art of Julie Maritou. Our producers are Summer Evans and Brian McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen to past interviews and shows from our archives at wabe.org slash city lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? 
This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnerbarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.